Welcome to the Bifocal Podcast with John White and Jason Himmelstein, where we talk about business intelligence and the Microsoft stack with news, interviews, and expert opinions from around the space. This is episode 97, recorded on March 21st, 2019, where John and Jason talk to Matthew Roche, Senior Program Manager on the Power BI CAT team about data flows, sort play, and much, much more. Good day, Chase. <laughs> hey, John. Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> How are things going there in Canada today? I am 12. <laughs> things are going good, man. There is no snow. It is warm. I have started planting a garden. This is all good. I am super happy for you, my friend. It's, uh, yeah, I'm in Southern California today, and it is as you would expect Southern California to be. There's no mudslides, there's no wildfires, so it's gorgeous. You know? That's not exactly what I would expect California to be. I would expect mudslides and fires for the most part, wouldn't it? Right now, it's, uh, it's spectacular. Everything's in bloom. <laughs> Their wildflowers, I would argue, rival Texas right now. It's just really everything's in bloom right now. It's really beautiful. Lots of purples and yellows and all sorts of great stuff. It's, uh, it's impressive. And you know the the temperatures are very nice. There, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't suck. So I'm actually on nice. site with a customer this week visiting and spending some time, but wanted to carve out a few minutes to make sure we got the episode out this week. I think well, it's a good one. Let's do that. This is uh, one of the more fun interviews we've had. We this is a long interview, folks. Just so you know, because Matthew, we we went into a bunch of different topics with Matthew Roche, not only about data flows, but we got into some some personal stuff. And he has a fascinating history himself, and you know some of the things that that he is into and talks about. Just a lot of fun. So definitely well worth a listen. If you are not familiar with Matthew Roche, he is a a fascinating guy, and I had a blast. Uh, getting to do this interview, and I know you did too, John. We both walked out of there just giddy. It was so much fun. Geeked right out. He's like, you just press a button and bam, the information just flows out in an organized, <laughs> ex- explicable fashion, man. It was it was awesome. It was great. So let's go ahead and roll that interview after a word from one of our sponsors. All right, man. Feel uncertain about your Power BI success? What are the questions you need to answer to deliver value? Tumble Road can help. They will put you on the road to success with training, advice, and products that get you to value faster, just like they've done for other Fortune 50 customers. Download their free Power BI guide, packed with technical tips and tricks, at tumbleroad.com forward slash success. Hey, John. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing much better today. I got, I got sleep last night. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little more rough around the edges today myself. Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually went to bed at like 9.30. I went out for dinner and then had some great drinks, but man, I was wiped. So we, we recorded something yesterday, and I I was dragging. It was just the end, of the, the end of official sessions yesterday, and we were on campus. And today... We're, uh, I've been having a great morning. We're, we're over on the Advanta campus here. We're in the belly of the beast. Yes. So we're, we're getting some. The power beast. The some, power some, beast. Ooh, that's excellent. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a different take on the, the Advanta campus that I'm used to hearing. Well, if you, if, you, if you think about the way that things are set up, most of the business applications group, so this is the power platforms or Power BI, Power Apps, and Flow, and much of the Dynamics uh, 365 teams are based here in the Advanta campus. For those who have not been to uh, uh, to Microsoft HQ, this is a, a complex of three tall buildings about 15 minutes south of the main campus in Redmond. And having the ability to easily you know, find and be physically close to all of the folks that are working on very similar things 
it makes it very easy when you're working within the power uh, within the power platform. Makes getting to Canvas a little bit more uh, aggravating. But yeah. Definitely a good trade-off. But this is a perfect segue into actually introducing our wonderful guest for the day, Matthew. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Oh, not at all. So uh, my name is Matthew Roach. I'm a program manager on the Power BI customer advisory team. Uh, I've been with Microsoft for a little bit over 10 years. Uh, I've worked on uh, SQL Server integration services, master data services, and data quality services, as well as Azure Data Catalog and a few other uh, data-centric efforts, some of which uh, never saw the light of day. Before I joined Microsoft, I was a data warehousing and ETL consultant, architect, mentor, and trainer. So I've been doing data-centric things or dev-centric things for one way or another for 25-ish years, so it's been a while. You're older than you look. I'm older than I act. That's the important <laughs> thing. That's fantastic. I, I actually first met Matthew on when, it, when Power BI was still in its V1 stage, <laughs> when we had that shared data catalog. Yes. I can't remember what it was called, but yeah. It, it was the Power BI data catalog. Yes. And, and the interesting thing in my mind is that Power BI and most self-service business intelligence tools have always been about enabling business users to do things that that previously you would need a highly technical person with, with hard-to-use tools to do. And Power BI V1 was all about functionality in Excel and Office 365 Online. And Power BI V2, the, the, the current mature successful iteration of Power BI, is its own standalone set of tools and platforms. But that, that data catalog was essentially our first try, or Microsoft's first try, at more self-service information management and enabling a business user that would create a Power Query, which if you think about it from a technical perspective, it's basically a view definition. So here's a query that runs right. against a thing. Yeah. Being able to share that view, that query, that valuable rectangle of data, the definition of it, yeah. to have one business user create it and to be able to say to another business user, this is how I defined this thing, which may have logic that could save you an hour or a week to re-implement. We saw a lot of value that was in that. but. When you compare it to most of the other things that are in Power BI, the visualizations, the data models, and so on, it didn't have the traction. And when we rebooted or reimagined Power BI, this is one of the things that didn't have an obvious translation in the new version. From my perspective, data flows in Power BI are just about yeah, that. Yeah, that's about a, that. I, I didn't see the segue coming. I, I honestly had never connected those two particular dots before, but. There is a lot of similarity between them. So both the data catalog in V1 and data flows in Power BI today, they're based on Power Query, yep. where you have, and I, I keep using this term, rectangle of data. I like it. It's a table, a view, a query, an entity, whatever term you want to use. It has columns and rows, so it's, it's rectangular in shape. It's not hierarchical, it's not multidimensional. It's a rectangle. And so based on Power Query, they allow business users to define some rectangle of data, and they're both focused on sharing. Obviously, the biggest or one of the biggest differences is that in data flows, you actually have a persisted yeah. instance of the data. So it's not just the query definition, it's not just the view, but through the data flow engine inside of the Power BI service, the query gets executed, the output of that query gets stored into Azure under the hood, but it's still around 
end-user-driven sharing of data without the need for explicit IT oversight or involvement. That's excellent. I, that doesn't need any translation on my No. I think it's well, the yeah. shortest meeting I'll have today. Uh, thank you, everyone. It's been a great time. <laughs> you threw me there because that, that, that I'm, I'm still thinking about. I like the rectangles of data thing. I we, love that. They're, they're, we, we've gotten a couple. Uh, hashtag rectangles of data. Hashtag rectangles of data. We, we, we've Copyright had the, Matthew Rowe. We've had a couple of really great, you know, things like that that have dropped. The hidden org, org chart one yesterday was pretty spectacular That's a, as that well. That was a good one. So lots of different ways of thinking about it that really are, are broadening. You, speaking of, are on the, you, you mentioned you're on the customer advisory yep. team. You know, we've met several of the folks who are on that team, but you are front and center out there helping with training and things like that. There's lots of content that you've put out there. I've watched many of the videos that you guys have done. So we're going to make sure we put links to those in the Yay. show notes because we want to make sure people can find them easily. But the latest baby that you've been focused on is this data flows concept. I personally uh, have started to understand it a little bit differently. And knowing where you've come from, it definitely makes sense as to why you're front and center in front of that. What do people need to know about data flows to really get that good starting point, that understanding. First of all, let me direct all readers explicitly to my blog. So I have my own personal blog, and I need to emphasize this is me, Matthew, with my own personal take. It's not official. It doesn't get any marketing or legal review or anything like this. This is me sharing my interpretation, which I'll defend, but it's not Microsoft. If you go to my bipolar blog, so it's SSBI, so selfservicebipolar.com, I probably have at this point 25 to 30 different articles, including uh, an eight or nine part sort of overview of what's in there. So keep in mind that any verbal summary that I come up with today is going to be a subset of that written information that's out there. But I think the most important thing or the most important way to approach data flows is that they are a way for business users to do, I'm going to put this in air quotes, you can see me or hear, <laughs> hear me waving my fingers on the, uh, on the recording, uh, to do self-service data warehousing. And I need to explain that phrase because it's easy to misinterpret. If, and, if and the term data warehousing can it, scare people, too. It can. It's easy to read more into it. But if we as business intelligence professionals think about the end-to-end -end flow of a BI application, on one side, we have a bunch of data sources. So typically a data source, a transactional system where data is being produced and managed, it is designed for a specific transactional purpose. You know, there's, there's your point of sale system, there's a CRM system, there's all these other things. And each one of them, at least historically, has been designed to support that transactional need without any thought uh, or at least any uh, high-priority requirement yeah. for downstream analytics. So most BI applications, by definition, are using data for a purpose other than the purpose in which it was created. And that means that you, you need to do massaging, you need to do transforming. So your BI application will start with some set of data sources off to the left. You know, I always think of it being on the left because I'm a left to right uh, uh, language You're person. You're describing the slide I think I have in every every talk. You, every yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so it's my, my standard slide or any, any BI high-level architecture slide, think about that when you're listening. And to solve the problems that having all of these different technically unrelated but conceptually overlapping data sources, there's need for a place to do staging. So 
for example, to make sure that you can pull from those source systems at the right time in the right way that it doesn't affect their transactional performance or your load window. To do standardization and cleansing and consolidation and conformance to make sure that even though all of these 20 systems, they have some way of representing a product or a customer or a schedule or you know whatever your common concepts are, to have one way that represents the canonical analytics view of those things. So, so this is what the data warehouse does. The data warehouse tier, not don't think physical or relational right. data warehouse. Think about a logical part of the architecture. It solves these well-known problems, and it's been doing this for 30 years, oh, right? Yeah. So this is none of this is new. But in a modern BI application, the self-service business intelligence capabilities invariably focus on reporting and dashboarding, you know, visualization that it, a business user can take data that is prepared by IT and do new things with it without needing a report writer. Right. And Power BI and some other tools also have self-service data modeling. So uh, using Power BI Desktop, a business user can create an analytics model. So what, what is essentially the analysis services tabular model represented as a Power BI data set, they can do that without needing any real technical skills. And part of that is the ability to have Power Query as a self-service data preparation tool where they can pull in data from multiple sources to define, again, the rectangles, to define the, the tables in their tabular model. But this typically means one of three things. So the first one is that either every data element that the business user needs already exists in a managed location, you know, the data warehouse that was curated by IT, so created and maintained by a central technical group. And can be trusted. Uh, and can be trusted, yes. Or the business users that need data that is not yet in that central data warehouse, they can ask it of IT and they can wait until IT gets around, you know, days or weeks or months later and adding the new dimension or the new attributes or whatever it is. Or, and this is sort of where the two-edged sword of self-service BI comes in, uh, which for the record is the best kind of sword. <laughs> but the, the third common pattern is that using Power Query, a business user will take the 80% of the data that they can get from the, the central data warehouse and they will mash it up with another 20% from other sources, often the same sources that the data warehouse is pulling from through the IT managed ETL process. And by doing this, they both solve their own immediate problem, but they also reintroduce at a small scale all of the problems that the data warehouse pattern solves. Yes. So there's this pro and con of self-service BI and self-service data preparation. There was, there was a time this, I referred this, to Power BI as Rogue BI. Yeah, no, it's and and this. So let's 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 put a pin in that. Let me let me finish my thoughts yes. uh, around data flows. What's important to know? Self-service yes. data warehousing. We'll walk the stack back a little bit there, and data flows are a way to enable analysts and business users to implement the data warehouse pattern without needing to use professional tools. Mm. So I, as a business user, can go to my workspace in the Power BI service, say create data flow, use Power Query Online, so this familiar tool embedded in the browser to connect to the data sources, do whatever transformations I need, and land it into a data flow, which is, the data flow is a container, 
and entities inside it. So it's like a database with tables, but different terms and different technical implementation. And once that's done, I can then use those entities as another data source in Power BI Desktop as I'm building out my data set and my PBIX file. And at the same time, I can share them natively through the service with other business users. So if there's work that I do to connect to and shape and refine that data, it's very easy for me to add someone to the workspace. If you're a member of the workspace, you'll be able to use the data that are in the data flows in that workspace. So instead of locking it away in the reports, you're putting it somewhere central so it's reusable. Yes, and if you think about the technology, data flows are built on top of Azure storage, mm -hmm. just like a data set is built on top of analysis services, but it's all managed by the service. So the, the business users need to care about the technology, but what we see as BI professionals is anytime, and I don't know if you guys see this in your, in your consulting work, but anytime that I see someone who wants to use their analysis services model or cube as a data source that is like the biggest flashing red light, it's like, yes, technically you can connect to it and read from it, but it's an analytics model. It is not designed for data loading at scale. So sure, you can do it, but this is the thing that you're going to be paying someone to fix next year. A data flow, on the other hand, it's a way to have those reusable things upstream in the, no pun intended, in the flow of data where they belong. And because it's built on Azure, there are opportunities for more sharing. So this is sort of a, a bigger topic. I'm not sure we want to go down got down into yet. So John is, John no, is shaking no. his head here. Oh, I, 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 I would love to geek out. I've already gone down that road, in fact. So, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. The, the way that you explained that is very different than ha having read all of the stuff and and seen you know the videos and everything. You gave me a completely new perspective. So number one, thank you for that because that's awesome. I tend to look at the world on the uh, end user side. I'm a, I'm a builder of reports. I'm a consumer of data because I have tons of data coming in. I'm not in the consulting space. I work for a large hosting slash services firm and I use all of our data coming out of Salesforce, coming out of our other systems. Frequently talk about this on the show of, you know, I build reports for people that then they go off and do special things with. But I've always explained Power Query in the cloud. That, that was what Dataflows was, was simply, hey, you get, I'll get Power Query in, in the cloud. I knew about the back, where, where it backs and, and things like the Azure data like V2 and all of that. But the way you explained it about the new the data warehousing concept, that's really fantastic. So I definitely appreciate that. And I, I think this is something that I would love to hear, you know, from you moving forward or from anyone listening to this. How do you talk about this with those analyst people? So for someone who doesn't have a data warehousing or BI technical background, one of the things that, that I know that I struggle with, it's easy to do in a conversation, mm -hmm. but how do you meaningfully convey these concepts to say to someone you know, who doesn't know the difference between a data lake and a database and a data cube that some things are better for other things, you know, uh, different types of sharing. I don't know if you saw my blog post on Legos, uh, like the Lego brick analogy. This is probably my most concrete attempt to communicate this in non-technical terms, but as you're building, moving left to right in that BI architecture, the further to the right that you get, the more complete the solution is, 
And the more reduced the opportunities for reuse are, but how do you how do you help a non-technical user find that sweet spot for what you want to share, what you want to reuse? Because it's not there's one tool that's better for all jobs. How do you find the right tool for the right job? Well, John and I came from the SharePoint space, and I still firmly, fairly live there. But for I wrote a book many years ago about uh, developing business intelligence tools. For, you know, in SharePoint and previous world, way, way back, worked in the defense space where we built enterprise tooling, leveraging things like Power Pivot Analysis Services with you know all sorts of neat, interesting stuff, .NET against it. And now we don't have to do so much of that. Yeah, we don't need the book. No, you, <laughs> the, book, the book's not useful anymore because you, they killed off all the products in it. It was it, all it, about Power Pivot and Power Pivot. It, it, holds, it holds up the monitor okay. Uh, it slides because it's only it's only in softback, but that's okay. But the back then, what we were using was uh, SharePoint reporting services. In, in, sorry, reporting services integrated mode with SharePoint and similar concept. What you were talking about, like that's where we would deposit reports and share data sources and things of that nature. This is the right way of doing yeah, it. it really I would is. I would argue in the service being able to be backed by the right technology. And to me, this is a great story to be able to tell of that reuse capability, be able to point and keep my data model there and be able to point new report structures at it and things like that. So absolutely. Just like you would point more and more reports or BI developers in general building a PBIX file which has more than just reports in it, but you point them at the the IT managed data warehouse. You point them at all of these these central locations for data, whether it's data warehouse, data mart, data lake, that's what you want to use as your as your starting point to build the analytics and the visualizations. Data flows fall solidly into that. And it's the tooling, it's the fact that it is Power Query in the cloud. It's that tooling that makes it persona appropriate for the lesser technical users. But at the same time, every data architect and ETL developer or data engineer that I know, they love Power Query. Oh, yeah. know, it's, it's this, this simple but powerful tool. So even though a lot of our experiences are designed with uh, the analyst in mind, they're also very appropriate for a lot of these, uh, these professional scenarios as well. Our legacy world, and John brought up Rogue BI, our legacy world was always the, we started with personal BI, and then we went to team BI, and then you went to org BI. The grow up and story. Yeah. The, it's that full grow up story. The cool thing I see this being is the ability to take that from being the rogue BI concept yeah. to being that more mainstream, and we're giving it to you in personal spaces to be able to do this the right way so that that grow up story is much easier. Or define, or you get value out of the process as, as you go along. You can get to that, that highly managed state, but you don't have to wait for that highly managed yes. state, right? Yeah. That's the beauty. And then, you know, that spec that you build, you could hand to IT without having to try to communicate your ideas to them. They can see it working. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's two points of that that seem really, really important to me. So sometimes when I'm talking with enterprise customers, so I, I don't actually build anything these days. I talk to people about what other people build, and, and it's, it's good. It's not working, but talking about people who work seems yeah. to be my, my forte. It's a, <laughs> this is where I shine. But I hear some compliance-centric or compliance-focused companies essentially saying, we're really concerned about data flows because this self-service data sharing will empower non-IT users to share data with, uh, with each other, and that's not what we want. 
So for the folks on the call, everybody in the room is rolling their eyes because they know they're doing it already, right? So they're, they're taking their SAP reports and they're, they're dumping them out to Excel. They're using every tool that's out there to get the information into CSV or Excel files. Brad and Martz. and they're, they're sharing them via email. They're mm -hmm. sharing them on OneDrive or Dropbox or whatever. There is this shadow data ecosystem that's out there already. So from a rogue BI perspective, I love this term, from a rogue BI perspective, we're providing better tools to enable business users to share data inside the system. The fact that a Power BI data flow and the entities inside it are part of this fully managed cloud service means that administrators, either through tools in the UI or through the administrative APIs, they have insight into what's been created, where it gets its data from, where the data is being used. This information is available. And for folks that are looking at this, there are some things that we don't make super easy today. I think that we there's still room to improve some of these uh, these capabilities. Still in preview. But, but it's, it's, it's still in preview too. <laughs> today, but it's also managed in the service. So we're essentially, and this, this is something that will probably end up getting beeped, but I once worked with someone who said, you know, talking about a particularly cantankerous customer, I would rather have him inside the tent out rather than outside the tent pissing in. <laughs> and this is, this is a way to acknowledge the fact that business will do whatever business needs to do to solve their goals. If waiting three months is going to cost some salesperson a $50,000 bonus, he's not going to wait, right? No. And we shouldn't expect him to. So that rogue BI in one way, we're bringing the activities that Bridging are already taking place into the service. But from that operationalization perspective, that grow up perspective, the fact that the Data flows are based on M, so it's a, it's a Power Query query, means that we can just take that script and copy and paste it, reuse it somewhere else. And unlike a Power Query script that is defining something in the tabular model, here in data flows, it is already at the appropriate location in the end-to-end -end flow. It's in the right tier, so there is a greater opportunity for it to be able to be reused without modification. That's really the gap in that grow-up story for Power Query and the tabular model because of how the pieces fit together. So it's better, and then it's better, and the more you look at it, the better it gets. Well, and just to extend that thought one more, because you mentioned something earlier about uh, it, it, it's similar to the data set in, in the Power BI service, having you know, its analysis service, you're just managing everything for them. And you talk about the storage, and you know one of the questions you get is, where is the data actually sitting? Now, with the XMLA endpoints opening up, you're going to be able to directly access your analysis services instance and, and manage it like it's an analysis services. So you're doing the hard work for us if we want you to, but we can get at that stuff and fine tune it if we need to. Similarly now, because that data is being stored somewhere in a Microsoft tenant, I presume, is there any way to open that up in a similar way to the uh, to what's happening with XMLA? First short answer is yes, absolutely. The longer answer is, is a little bit more involved. So for that XMLA endpoint that you mentioned, so uh, for those listeners that may not be familiar with this, this is in-progress effort. Because a Power BI data set is really just an analysis services model that is managed by the Power BI service, by 
publicly exposing that programmatic endpoint that that every BI tool in the world knows how to talk to, we're opening up a whole bunch of both visualization scenarios. So imagine having a data set in Power BI that your MicroStrategy or Tableau or ClickView clients connect to. This is possible in preview today. And as we enable that endpoint for read-write management, all of the professional analysis services tools for granular refresh and management and deployment will work for the models in Power BI as well. That, to the best of my understanding, I don't own this feature, this is probably going to be available for Power BI Premium, that dedicated capacity for larger customers, at least for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. The difference with data flows is that because we are building explicitly on top of Azure Storage, we have uh, more options and more flexibility. So the default state is that the data flow data is persisted in storage that is managed by Microsoft, which essentially means that the Power BI service is the only writer and the Power BI service is the only reader. So there's multiple scenarios inside there, but you can't get to it directly is the the short answer. There is a capability which is available today known as bring your own storage account. So BYOSA is, is like on 100 emails in my inbox. And this is a way to allow a Power BI administrator to identify an existing Azure subscription and an Azure Data Lake storage Gen 2 storage resource in the Power BI side, which essentially says, I now have the option to store the data from my data flows in my lake. So I've got my own lake, it's the organizational account, and once this setup is performed at the tenant level, an individual workspace administrator can say, for my workspace, the data flows in this workspace, instead of being stored in the organization, sorry, in the uh, the Power BI managed storage, it will go into the organizational storage. And then whenever those data flows are refreshed, the CDM folders, which I'll circle back and define that, but the CDM folders in which the data flow data is stored are created in your lake in the location that you can then control security for. So if you want to have data that is being produced by a data flow uh, execution, perhaps the logic being defined by a business user, you can then use this as an input for data factory, SQL DW, uh, Azure machine learning, essentially any Azure service that can read in CDM folders can work with this. So this is, we're, we're just brushing the surface of the cool, even though this is something that most Power BI users will never care about, that CDM, the common data model and CDM folders is really the magic that data flows will bring to the broader data platform. So if we think about the common data model, so the CDM is a standard metadata format for describing entities. And for people with a SQL Server background, think of the system catalogs. You have sys.objects and sys.columns and you know all of these different things, sys.types and blah, 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 blah. This is how SQL Server internally stores its metadata. And those system views that I just named are an API for manipulating, for reading them. There's also the information schema, which is like a, a subset of what SQL has, but it's in a standard format. So whether it's uh, SQL Server or Sybase, 
if that I don't know. <laughs> so so Sybase was the one other uh, the one other platform I worked on back in the day that uh, had uh, that supported the information schema. I don't know if they still exist, but in any event, there's like the standard way to represent the metadata. The common data model plays a similar role. But in addition to having the structural metadata, like the entity names and the column names and the data types and the relationships and things like that, it also has the full lineage information. So here is the M script for where we're getting the data from and the like. And there is a set of predefined entities that Microsoft or partners have defined that are available on GitHub so that you can have as a starting point, you know, customer product, order, sale, you know, whatever whatever they are. A lot of these were informed by the work that Microsoft has done in our Dynamics applications, but we're also working with industry partners to have a set of entities for, for standard verticals like retail or education or healthcare, so that if you are either building something for your organization or you're building a reusable software as an ISV or SI, this is a platform to build on. So that common data model as a metadata standard really, really powerful, especially because we're opening it up. It's not, you know, it's not a Microsoft thing. We've got many partners that are working with it already. And then the CDM folders is the data persistence standard that implements data that is described by the common data model metadata. So a CDM folder is literally a folder with files in it. So if you're familiar with Power BI data flows already, you know that a data, well, you start with a workspace. So you've got Power BI, then there are workspaces. There's one or more data flows in a workspace and one or more entities inside the data flow. This maps directly to the file system structure that the Power BI service will create in your lake. So there's a folder for Power BI, there's a folder for the workspace, there's a folder for each data flow, there's a folder for each entity. And then inside the entity folder, there is a set of CSV files, of simple, easy to use text files that can contain the data for the entity. If you have a simple entity with no incremental refresh, I'm simplifying things a little bit here, but there's there's one file for the entity. If you set up partitioning, the file structure to represent that entity will reflect the partitions that you've defined in your incremental refresh schedule inside of Power BI. But because it is such a simple standard format, anyone can read it. And all of the Azure data services are aligning with support for this format. So today, you know, it's March something, March 21st, 21st, 2019, as we record this. Today, you may need to actually read in uh, text files and the JSON metadata that's at the root of the CDM folder. You may need to parse these yourselves. A year from now, uh, I suspect, so, so not making <laughs> not making any comments around, uh, around specific dates or deliverables, but in the near future, services like Azure Machine Learning, Azure Data Factory, and so on, will have native support for CDM folders. So just like Dataflows do in Power BI, they will appear as these strongly typed containers and and rectangles of data inside those experiences. And imagine, so imagine if 20 years ago, someone had said to you, oh yeah, well, you know, a SQL, SQL Server table, it just shows up automatically in Oracle as a table. So it's like, whoa, it would blow your mind, right? So like a table here, even though they're the same concepts, the implementation was so different, you had to jump through all of these hoops to make it work with Power BI data flows and the just common data model. Right into it. 
It's the same thing in each location. And there are already many independent software vendors that are out there targeting this CDM folder format. It's not just the Microsoft services. It's all about interoperability and sharing. And perhaps most importantly, I say this a lot, perhaps most importantly, but one of the keys is that because it's in the lake in a shared location, you don't need to copy or duplicate that data in most scenarios. Mm -hmm. So you can simply reference a CDM folder that already exists. And if you have potentially hundreds of terabytes worth of data representing some corpus of knowledge, you probably don't want to duplicate it at all, much less many times that most solutions might require. We are really getting to that single version of the truth. (sighs) Closer and closer. Very cool stuff. That, That last bit, your hair's blown back a little, Jason. Like, I, I just seriously, man, the storytelling that you do around this stuff wow. is fantastic, because there are different ways of thinking about the same thing. Because you know, the CDM, you know, we've we've talked about common data model for apps and for, for the whole nine yards. It's been uh, an adventure watching the naming of some of the things that we're dealing with <laughs> in this space. I, I feel like I should apologize to everyone about that. <laughs> But the conceptual of it is really neat, and I love where where you guys are heading. Knowing that we're taking your valuable time, we appreciate you doing this. There are a couple of other things that you touched on as we talked that I'd like to round back on for just a minute. You talked about double-edged swords being the best, and we know of you (laughs) being a a fan of swords. I'd love to hear the story behind it. So I I was a geek growing up, so I I, played Dungeons and Dragons and read all the fantasy books and so on. I'm sure I'm not alone. No, 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 you're you're in good company at the moment. So I I did sport fencing, like Olympic-style fencing back in college. I fought in the SCA, the Society Society for Creative Anachronism, Anachronism. back before my IT career got started and I got a real job and got fat and out of shape. But back 2014, so almost five years ago, there was this video that the New York Times had produced. So if you go to YouTube and search for a New York Times longsword, it's the first thing that comes back, that talked about historical European martial arts. And it was showcasing an event in the U.S. called Long Point. And to sort of summarize this, for the last 30 years or so, there have been modern people who have discovered surviving historical fight books, these manuscripts that were training how to kill people with longsword, with dagger, with spear, with all of these different weapons. And they were designed as training manuals back in the 1300s up through modern days. And they basically found these and interpreted them, or sorry, translated them, interpreted them, and then applied them as a modern martial art and combat sport. And the umbrella term is historical European martial arts. But I saw people fighting with steel weapons, like modern protective gear, but real freaking swords. It's like, oh my God, I had no idea people did this. I need to do this. <laughs> and, and once I knew the term to look for, I got online and I searched for HEMA Seattle. I found a club. It was literally at practice the next night. Wow. And when you're starting a full contact combat sport, when you're already in your late 40s, there are some barriers that you have to overcome. I train and compete with people who are less than half my age, who have been been doing martial arts for you know, for 20 years. <laughs> I will probably never win a tournament. We'll probably never get a medal uh, for sparring. But there's there's something just so viscerally rewarding about having having an unbridled, violent 
outlet in your life. You know, the ability to be in the moment with nothing between you and success or you and failure, but yourself, your weapon and your opponent. And it's meditation in steel in some ways. And it's a very, very good thing. I also do uh, sort of the other side of my sword activities. Rather than using blunt weapons against a resisting human opponent, uh, I also use sharp weapons against non-living targets. So there's uh, there's competition. It's surprisingly difficult to cut things with a sword. You know, you need a lot of body mechanics and practice to make that work. I have one gold medal and one bronze medal from my competitions in in cutting. So I've been fortunate in that regard. But it's a good thing. It's 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 a good mental and physical outlet. Very cool. Wow. And the other the other one that I wanted to throw on back on, and you and I had talked about this before we started recording, was your blog has a very unique name, and and you, you sort of <laughs> dissected it a little bit earlier. But would you mind giving us some insight? Yeah, absolutely. So the so the the, the blog title is Bi Polar. So you've got the the play on Bi for business intelligence, but. I've realized this really in the last five years or so. All of my life, I have struggled with anxiety and depression, like clinical anxiety and clinical depression. And for the most part, I have been able to manage it, you know, with diet and with exercise and so on. But there have been very, very dark times in my life. And I had never realized what was going on until I was in my 40s. And as the public conversation around mental illnesses has become more and more open in recent years, I've been able to look at celebrities or others speaking out publicly and say, oh my God, that's what's been going on. It's been empowering for me. It's really enabled me to be more successful both in my professional life and in my personal life. And one of the things that I wanted to do was just to be open about it. And there is a post on my blog that basically says it's important to talk about mental health. And I talk about some of the challenges that I've been through. And I probably have two to three people reach out on a monthly basis to say, I read your blog. It was very valuable to me. Thank you. And there have been a few more people in the, the, the data platform community who have actually used my blog post as the inspiration to have similar messages for themselves. I'm convinced uh, you know, as a 50-year-old man, that most people struggle with these things, and either there is the stigma you don't want to speak up, and it's 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 easier when you're already a professional and you're successful yeah. in your career. I have a position of privilege because I know that that as an established program manager at Microsoft, I have the support of my manager, my team, and my company. Not everyone has that, but having the people that are comfortable doing so speak out to say the people that present this public image of success, they are also struggling with the things that you're struggling with. It's important to say, and it's. It, I feel like it's in one way, it's a responsibility for me to be open about what I've struggled with so that people who are in similar positions understand that you know it does get better and that there are other people that go through the same thing. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing. Mm. We've talked on other shows of ours about the physical health component, the stigma therein of, of especially in, in the male community, of you know not being wanting to talk about things, and we've lost friends to, to, to testicular cancer and things like that. But the not just the physical 
well-being, but the emotional well-being of people is so very, very, very important as well. So, and the stigma around it is is huge. So, thank you for breaking that ice and uh, you know sharing that story with us as well. I, so. I am delighted to be part of that conversation. Our last thing that we always do, and we're, we're I know we're we're going to get kicked out of our room here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh yeah. In a minute, and I'll ask you to do this after the fact. We're trying to uh, something new that we started with the show is uh, we're trying to highlight user voice items. So for us, and I'll, we'll ask you to submit something that we can put onto the post that will follow this. We're doing our own picks and we'll, we'll wrap this on the backside around it ourselves, but we're trying to make sure that user voice is something, your ideas.powerbi.com, something that everybody is more aware of. So we'll ask you for a pick for later because we're not going to nope, put no, you on I'll, the spot. No, I'll, 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 I'll do it right now. Oh, even better. Uh, How about so, that? So for Power BI, vote for what's important to you. That's full stop there. For Microsoft Teams, Go out there and find the item to support multiple open windows for Microsoft Teams and vote for that. I agree with that. Uh, riffing back to the mental health issues, for me, being constantly interrupted during the day, oh. that's a huge anxiety trigger. And anytime that I'm working in Teams, you know, I start something and, oh, there's a notice and I need to go over there and then I need to remember to go back drives me crazy. I'm so with you that's the user voice item. Awesome. All right. <laughs> well, very cool. Thank you so much for the time, Matthew. We really appreciate it. We look forward to seeing you at uh, MBAS coming up here soon. Yep, I will, uh, I will be at the Business Application Summit in June. I will be at the Intelligent Cloud Conference in April in Copenhagen. I will be at SQL Saturday on May 4th in Stockholm, Sweden. Very so those cool. are the, the th three things that I have coming up that awesome. I remember. Oh, well, thank you very much, Fantastic, sir. Fantastic, man. John? I, I got nothing to add, man. All right, well, we'll, we'll get out then. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Thank, thank you. you. This episode of the Bifocal Podcast is sponsored by Tigraph, the award-winning reporting and analytics platform for Office 365. Get the full picture of your Office 365 network by using Tigraph. See how customers leverage its actionable insights to better understand their organization's usage, collaboration, and adoption patterns. Try Tigraph today. Sign up for a free trial at tigraph.com. Yeah, man, Matthew is really great. A lot of fun to talk to. I really appreciate his open and openness and honesty about his own personal journey. I think that, you know, it was a lot of the, not only the, the geek stuff that we talked about, yeah. the, the technical geek stuff, but the, you know, the stuff that he does personally with, uh, with the swords and stuff like that is, uh, is really fascinating. I went home and showed my kids some of the links he sent us. So we need to put some of that stuff in the show notes. And it was really cool. They thought it was really neat. So I, you know, don't want to add too much to it because it was a long interview, right? And we still have to get to picks. I just love it when someone, you know, says, I'm interested in that and I don't care what it means. I'm just going to go for it. It's just unabashed honesty. It's great. Yeah, it was very cool stuff. But yeah. This episode, as I said, we ran a little bit longer than most of our others, mm -hmm. but we still want to do our user voice picks this month. Yep. And I, John, am going to jump ahead because mine actually has to do with some of the stuff that Matthew talks about. In fact, one of his blog posts. Are you saying yours is more important than mine? No, John. I'm certainly not <laughs> saying mine's more important than yours. I'll leave that to the listener to decide. That's right. Which one of ours is a better pick for this month, <laughs> or excuse me, for this week. But I think mine is is pretty relevant because they actually reference one of Matthew's posts in the article in this idea. And this one is one single schedule task for sequential refresh of both data flows and data set. 
And, you know, this is, you know, the, what it talks about is uh, the biggest thing that I'm missing is the ability to schedule a data flow plus a data set without premium capacity. Now you can schedule them both separately, but it's not an automated, in, a, in an automated sequential way. And this, I think, would be really very useful. It is under review. So the more of us that go vote for this, the more they will consider doing it. So I, I highly recommend going off and voting for this. I'd love to see it if it was uh, actually if it was it was if it was an event. So when the underlying data flow was updated, I mean the service should be able to detect that. Then go ahead and update any connected uh, data sets. That'd be uh, that'd be outstanding, especially for those of us who use external data flows and you don't use a schedule. You'd be able to just push that data directly into the data set. That would be phenomenal. So I'm just to just add my two cents to that. That would be really really cool so and with your two cents john i trust that we'll get your vote on this one you got my vote on that one (laughs) awesome so once we have john's vote i think it'll be up over uh, over 60 uh for this particular one and i think that's uh you know definitely something that microsoft will have to take a look at and and decide to go off and do so i trust that that'll happen because it is definitely important this one uh, John, what do you have this this week? I've got one that's actually been out there for quite a while. The title is simply Allow Fonts to be Customized. It's not all that descriptive, but uh, it uh, gets to the heart of a, of a really core issue in Power BI. Whenever you're styling out your report and, and choosing, picking some of the visual effects for your various visuals, you have a very limited set of fonts to choose from. I haven't counted them, but it's around 20 to 30. And if the one you need isn't there... Too bad. There's really no way to, to put it in there. So you're stuck with the limited palette of fonts. You can't add fonts into any of the selection panes. So that's basically what this user voice item is all about. The, the ability to bring your own font to the report and style things up exactly the way you want it. A lot of people have very strict styling guidelines uh, corporately, and, and that's it's very important for them, especially when dealing with the people like senior management. So it was originally submitted in 2015. I mean, right after the new Power BI was released, uh, Amanda uh, says it's been started and uh, as of last, well, as of uh, summer 2017. So that's a year and a half ago. So I don't know where we're at, but I bet you if we start piling on the votes some more, uh, we might be able to move things along a little further. Yeah, that would definitely be a good thing. Uh, it'd be nice to have. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of, of styling and, and mm-hmm. making things pretty, John. So I know this is uh, right up your alley. Yeah, definitely. How many votes does it have right now? 662. Well, that's not insignificant. And now I'll go and make it 663 right now. So You do that, sir. As usual, get out there, folks, and vote for these things. Look for your own things that are important to you. Do a search. Find that thing that you're missing in the service and and hoping that other people are as well and go vote it up so that Microsoft will continue to improve this product in the wonderful way that they have been, but based upon our feedback. With that, John, I'm looking forward to seeing you next week in Washington, D.C. Yes. And uh, then very shortly after that, we're going to be in Las Vegas. And if you go off and use either one of our last names, you do get a discount on the conference. So please get out there. If you haven't already registered for SharePoint conference in Las Vegas, we are doing our workshop. It's going to be a packed house. I've seen some of the numbers. It's going to, this is going to be a huge, huge event this year. I would guess it's at least double what it was last year. Really? That's impressive. Yeah, this is, this is going to be big this year. They have not yet announced who the musical act That's is going right. to be for the party. I would have expected that by now. I'm hoping to hear it soon. I've heard some I've heard some rumblings. I've heard some rumblings. 
And I can say that the rumblings that I've heard have been pretty enticing. But, you know, we'll see what actually ends up happening. You never can be sure with these things. But with that, John, I know that it is time for us to wrap up the show. And I am looking forward to seeing you, my friend, next week in Washington, D.C. So be sure to get out there. Go vote for your ideas. Keep listening. And we appreciate you. It's going to be a blast, man. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Bifocal Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or via your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter at Bifocal Show. The show notes for this and all of the Bifocal Podcasts can be found on the Bifocal.show blog. The music for the Bifocal Podcast is Indie Rock by Scott Holmes and is shared under Creative Commons. 